You see, there's an outline on page five of the service sheet, and it starts with this phrase, which was coined by one of those fireside poets of the 19th century. You may have heard it. Someone in my wider family said it of me once, and it goes like this. Oh, Russ, he's too heavenly minded to be of any earthly good. Too heavenly minded to be of any earthly good. Have you heard that phrase? If you haven't heard it, what it means, it's a caricature. And it says of someone who believes in God and heaven, it says of someone, well, they think of heaven too much in their life to be of any use in this real practical world. And you're meant to kind of nod your head and go, yeah, that's true, that's true, because heavenly-minded people would be of no use in in our world and our earth today. And I want to let the Bible push back on that entirely. The Bible shows us what you can see. This is easily tested. How long is life as we know it? It's brief. Like when this was written, the Bible was written, the average lifespan might be around 35. We might get to 70 or 80, and that's what we read in the Psalms, but can we just agree that life is short? It's brief. Ecclesiastes describes it as vapour. It's a breath. And it's gone. If life is brief... Is it possible that thinking of what comes after life and what is longer than this life might actually shape life in better ways? That thinking of eternity shapes what we do today? You see, no matter what we think about a person's life and value and meaning and contribution, I think that thinking of heaven too much isn't the problem. It's thinking of heaven too less or not at all is the problem. Not thinking of heaven, not thinking of judgment to come, not thinking of eternity means you get despots that do whatever they want because who's going to bring any justice to them? Not thinking of heaven, not thinking of eternity means that, well, you live your life however it wants, no matter who it hurts, and really nothing matters in this life. In fact, you take away heaven, you take away eternity, and life becomes very dull and it becomes a mess, more than it already is. You can't think of heaven too much. Jonathan Edwards, who is one of those American kind of Puritan, Reformed heritage kind of folks, wrote a whole treatise on it, that the beauty of heaven actually changes the way we understand life. Last week, from Philippians, we saw that passage from chapter 3, verses 12 to 16. Paul writes, he writes there about the reality of the day of Christ, heaven to come. And we saw last week, your past doesn't determine your future anymore. For those who trust in Christ, your past doesn't determine your future. And life now is now looking forward to the prize who is Christ. Today in God's word, we're going to see a contrast of two things. In Philippians 3, starting at verse 17, there are two ways to live. You can either live as an example of Christ in this world or as an enemy. There are two ways. That is, you can walk the life that is before you, live that life, the Christian lifestyle, as an example to others, or you can live as an enemy of Christ to others. 
And the question for today is, in the whole scheme of your life and what is before you, where is your life going? Today, you're invited invited first to join in walking like Christ. Let's read Philippians 3, verse 17. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I've often told you and now tell you even with tears walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. In this little passage, Paul is talking about there are two ways to live. And and first he says, what we need to do as a church is focus on, joining in on, with Paul, imitating him, joining walking like Christ, verse 17. And Paul speaks about that imitation, that example. Keeping our eyes on the example we have, Paul writes, in us. Now who are the us? In this letter, he can say, it's not just me. And Paul is not saying, hey, just look at me and just just do what I do. And if he did, Paul would be first to say, by the way, don't just do every single thing I do. Or have done because I'm a sinner. But look at the example I live. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. And there are others as well. Timothy, Epaphroditus mentioned in this letter. Look at the church as examples of Christ. Friends, here is an examined and tested and often written about fact of human flourishing. God has deeply designed us as his creatures for community. And we want to forget or neglect that. Hear that again. God has designed us for community, for relating. It's like Crocodile Dundee. There's a movie called Crocodile Dundee. It's kind of like the manual on how to be Australian. So if if you are not familiar with the movie Crocodile Dundee, and and some of us here are new to Australia, watch number one, there's two movies, the sequel was never really that good, but number one's the best one. And in number one, Crocodile Dundee, you just learn how to be an Australian, right? And one of the things that Crocodile Dundee does for us, it provides us that kind of wisdom, Australian wisdom about life. It's insightful. There's a moment where Dundee goes to New York, And he climbs a lamppost or a traffic light, I think it is. And he goes, wow, eight million people all living in the one spot. They must really like each other. He gets it. 
Why is it in a city of New York where if you kind of know the movies or the culture of New York, New York's that kind of place where they all live together, but, hey, I'm walking here! You know, like, it's kind of like, back off. It's, it's, it's a juxtaposition because why? Why do we live in places like that? Why do we live in communities? Because we're made for community. The church is God's new community. And what is the church in Philippians 3, 17 to 4, verse 1? It is a community of examples to one another. It's like we're a whole bunch of crocodile dundees. We're examples. We're how to learn how to be Christian. How do we learn how to be Christian? How do we get the manual of being Christian? It's the Bible, and it's the Bible in community. We actually learn from one another in community. Friends, this means something important in a day and age where we would rather just learn from podcasts or just YouTube or just books. I like books. It's actually my only real hobby at the moment. And he was asked, what are Russ's hobbies? And she said, oh, it's shooting and books. So it's mainly just books at the moment because <laughs> it didn't do the other one. Books are great, podcasts are great, YouTube is great, sort of, kind of. Mostly. But we often forego learning in community and we just want to learn as an individual and that's actually not how we learn and flourish. Because you can't have the holistic learning how to be a human, how to be a Christian, just by watching podcasts on Christianity. Sorry, listening to podcasts or watching YouTube. We actually learn from one another in community. We actually need the church. We actually need to get amongst community. The little ones, the little disciples, will learn how to be grown-up disciples by being in community. The senior disciples will be able to give us their wisdom of what it means to be a disciple of Christ to get to the finish line and to survive through suffering. We learn in community. We need more seniors. We literally pray for more seniors to join our church. Often they come and they go, is this a young person's church? We're like, no, it's not. If you joined it, then we could have more seniors joining it and we could have more disciples, disciple makers who are older and wiser. We need one another and particularly so we can look at the example in one another and walk like them and notice this walking is such a plural thing and it's all through the bible paul writes to the corinthians be imitators of me if i am of christ imitate paul look at his example the writer of hebrews says this Remember your leaders, those who spoke the word of God to you in Christ. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Imitate their faith. Christians grow through imitation. So here's a diagnostic question. What sort of example do you give of living for Christ? Kids pick this up real quick because kids are fast learners, aren't they? You know what they say? If you want to learn a language, start as a child. Learn a piano, start as a child. Well, I didn't learn any musical instrument and I had to learn languages later uh, at uh, theological college and that was harder for me. Kids learn fast and what do kids learn fast? They look at us and they look at us, how do you live as a Christian? The way we speak, what we do. But here's what they really notice. They notice what's important to us. Parents, your children 
will notice what you prioritise in life. And they will live that way, Cat Stevens tells us. Cat Stevens, you know what I'm talking about. He's a singer, a long time ago wrote a song, Cats in the Cradle, The Silver Spoon, Little Boy Blue and The Man on the Moon. When are you going to come home, home, Dad? That song, you don't know what I'm talking about. Go to Spotify, Google it. That song is all about a child eventually imitates his dad. The way dad lives is the way I'm going to grow up. And if you are not a parent here, you are a spiritual parent here. We're all disciple makers. We see you as spiritual parents of our kids. It takes a church to raise children. It takes a church to be examples to one another. And they will notice what's important to you. So if Christ is not priority in your life, with a laser-like focus in your prayers, in how you speak, in how you respond to things and react to situations, they will notice. Do you confess your sins? Do you actually be honest with people? They will notice this and they will grow up to be like that. They will notice your priority for church. Is church important or is it kind of an accessory or an attachment or a hobby I happen to do as part of my many hobbies and extracurricular activities? They will notice if you sing. They do. Our kids notice the singing. Do you, you know, we can come to church and we can kind of, you know, maybe I might mutter a few words about Jesus, but we'll go to the footy and we'll shout and scream and sing all the songs. Why? Ask yourself that question. What's important to you? And Paul implores us, walk as examples of Jesus Christ. Why? Because secondly, there's so many, and we're outnumbered by those who walk as enemies. The world and its media is one big church service to the God of this world. They get to preach to you every day. I only get half an hour on a Sunday. I know it goes near 40 minutes sometimes. But they get every day and every channel and every media and every outlet and they spend billions convincing you to buy it, to get it, take it, digest it, believe it and live that way as enemies of the cross of Christ. Look at verse 18. These are sobering words, aren't they? For many of whom, and Paul says, I've often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ, their end is destruction, their God is their belly, their glory and their shame with minds set on earthly things. And notice this, Paul doesn't go into detail of who these people are. If Paul wanted to name people, he often does in his letters, he doesn't name people. He's giving us big, broad categories. And he doesn't say this, oh, these people are just the politically left-leaning people. Or they're just the politically right-leaning people. He doesn't say, it's just that people group over there or that people group there. He's not warning against particular specific sins, but his summary is the underlying sin of this. The biggest problem in our world is wrong worship. We are so tempted to look at anyone else or anything else to save us and to satisfy us. We will look for something to rescue us from our problems 
either forget them or neglect them or get away from them. We look for something to save us. We're looking for a pseudo-saviour. And then we look for that thing to satisfy us forever. Question. Does it work? No, it just looks like this. It looks like this list in verse 19. Their God is their belly. Now, the language that Paul uses here doesn't just mean food. It could mean their sexual appetites. It could mean anything we consume. We have, in our part of the world, become a society of consumers. And we do this with church too, don't we? We do this with Christianity. We, we come and consume. The whole reason that, that if you're interested in church history, and I'm not just talking about Reformation church history or the early church fathers, go back, that's very fascinating, but even contemporary church history. Look at the trends. You can read about this because people are looking into this. The reason for the seeker-sensitive movement, not the seeker-welcoming, but the, seeker, the, the, the way in which churches were designed to kind of oh, get the big Bible readings out because no one's big Bible readings and, and get the big prayers and the whole... That's too churchy. Get all the churchy stuff out so that people would just come in. The reason for that was because we, we, we thought, well, people are consumers, and so let's treat them that way, and let's treat church as one big vending machine of consumption. And Paul says this, the problem with that is it's never satisfied. The God is their belly. People connect their happiness to what they can consume. We connect our happiness to what we can consume. Their glories and their shame. In other words, we often find the stuff that increasingly would embarrass us becomes the stuff of just what we glory in. Their minds are set on earthly things. That's the problem, isn't it? They're too earthly-minded to be of any earthly good. The heart of the problem is this. They replace God with themselves. And they become enemies of the cross of Christ. Now at this point, we face a temptation. Here's a temptation. You can probably think of people in your life who are enemies of Jesus. And maybe they've made you an enemy because you're of Jesus. You can probably think of people. What are we tempted to do now? Get angry. We're tempted to get angry and frustrated and, and, yeah, they're enemies. And I'm so looking forward to them getting what they deserve. Do you feel that temptation? Is that how we are to view our enemies? Have a look at verse 18. This is how we're to view our enemies. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears. With tears. This is a letter that the most common word in Philippians is joy. It's rejoice. This is a series about joyful community. And Paul says, when I think about those who are enemies of Christ, I cry. I weep. I move to tears. Because we know what Paul says. We know this, don't we? Verse 19. We know verse 19. Why do we have tears? 
And if you don't, why should we have tears? Because their end is destruction and hell. Where's our end? It's the opposite. It's citizenship in heaven. Look at verse 20. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Paul is saying the contrast could not be greater. There is hell and there is heaven. And in heaven there is a citizenship for those who trust in Jesus. And citizenship is a big deal. It's not just getting to heaven and and hoping there's a seat. It is you are booked in, citizen, you belong there. Citizen of heaven. The Philippians get the idea of citizenship. We saw in the book of Acts, two years ago, I think we're in the book of Acts, we saw throughout the book that when Paul and Silas end up in Philippi, why are they thrown into prison? Because the Philippians, who love their Roman citizenship, see them talking about a God who's not Caesar, and they say, we're Roman citizens. These people are talking against God who's Caesar. We want to throw it. That's why they get in trouble, because they love their citizenship. And I think Australians get citizenship too. We are one, but we are many. So from all the lands on earth we come, even in this church we have people from the nations and we live in this wonderful place that many have said is really paradise on earth. Who needs heaven when you live in Australia? We get citizenship. We're proud to be in Australia. We're proud to be Australians. We have our creeds of our citizenship, don't we? We have our call to worship. Our call and response goes like this. Aussie, Aussie, Aussie. There it is. But look at the contrast with citizenship in heaven. Or not. Citizenship in heaven can never pass away. Can't be lost. I've lost my passport once. That was a nightmare. You can't lose citizenship in heaven when you're safe in Christ. Citizenship in heaven offers hope, an incredible future, rather than a future of facing destruction. And citizenship in heaven is where Christ is. We saw last week, he's our prize. That A good test of a Christian heart is this. Are you looking forward to heaven because Jesus is there or just you get to be there? What is it about heaven? We, we long to be with Christ. And here in verse 21 is the God guarantee. We will powerfully be transformed for a real physical life forever in heaven. We often think about heaven as a place that's kind of spiritual, and it is until the resurrection day, but what we're actually looking forward to is a, is a renewing of the physicality of the, the, the life that we enjoy now. Heaven, the new creation, the new heavens and the new earth, is forever going to be a place where we get to hug people, eyeball them with our real physical eyeballs, shake their hand, see the scars in his hands. 
Heaven is a place, the new creation is a place, a citizenship of joy, joyful community, forever. And it starts now with this community being joyful, now looking forward to that. And that's the joy set before us. So we get to stand firm in the Lord Jesus, Paul writes in chapter 4, verse 1. There's a therefore there, it continues on. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, I long and love for you, my joy and my crown, stand firm in this. When you see enemies of the cross, enemies of Jesus, we can do that whole thing the psalmist is tempted to do in Psalm 73. We read Psalm 73 today, it's that cross-reference passage. Notice there, what's the psalmist say? When I see enemies... Life goes well for them. Like they're, they're fat and sleek. Now I get that's a different cultural thing, like, but that, that's, that's, that, they're prosperous. They've got prosperity. Why is it the bad people get away with it? More than that, why is it good things happen to bad people and bad things happen to good people? The psalmist is asking that question. But then he remembers their end. It doesn't last. Fatness, sleekness, prosperity doesn't last. So what are we going to stake our life on? This. Him. This is what lasts forever. How are you walking your life? As an example or as an enemy? I had to wrestle with that question. I mean, really wrestle with that as a teenager. I grew up in church. I found church completely boring. So if you're a teenager sitting here and thinking, this is boring, I get you. There's nothing fancy about me. And whilst I think, yeah, the chairs are pretty nice, and what a great building. We are not the most exciting show in town because we're not a show. That's not why we exist. We're not an entertainment platform. This is... Purely about getting one another to focus on Christ and being examples to one another. I'd really wrestle this as a teenager. Where am I going in life? How do I live my life? Is it with reliance on Jesus or is it, no thanks, but with an end that is destruction? The good news for you, for me, is that Jesus is the one who stood firm in our place. So you can actually belong to him forever. What you believe shapes how you behave. And believing in Jesus will shape how you behave in this life now. You can never be too heavenly minded. You can never be too much focused on Christ. In fact, our biggest need is to be focused on Christ. Because the biggest problems come when we don't focus on Christ. Friends, you can look in history. How are orphanages started? How are hospitals started? How are universities started? Christians being very heavenly minded being very focused on Christ. In the Roman Empire, because there was such a desire to have a boy, they would put the girls on the side of the road. Who picked them up and cared for them? 
It was the church. It was Christians. Heavenly-minded people, too heavenly-minded, focused on Christ. I'll put it to you, if you focused on Christ and you know your citizenship's in heaven, it'll change life here in this region radically. Last week we saw your past does not determine your future. Today we see this. What we look forward to defines our identity today and shapes how we live. We saw in the call to worship that kind of picture postcard from Revelation 21, that picture of what we will see one day. We're going to be there if you're in Christ. And we look forward to it with joy. Friends, if you trust in Jesus today and you're part of this joyful community, his church, can I encourage you just simply with these words, stand firm. Don't move from Jesus. The other offers will always leave a bitter aftertaste and they don't last. But what about the enemies? We have a motto here that Jesus changes everything. It's on the front page of our website. And if Jesus changes everything, which he does, it changes how we view our enemies now. We live in a divided world. Like it's a world of, you're either on the extremes, you're either this or you're that. And we often want to get the gospel and attach it to this or that. Well, I'm on this, and then I'm going to bring the gospel in, and the gospel says that this is okay, or that's okay, I'm over here. We're always in the extremes, and the gospel comes in and says, don't make the gospel your political party alignment. Don't make the gospel attached to your thing. The gospel is not your thing, it's Jesus' thing. And he comes in and cuts through all of that and says, it's actually about him being Lord and Saviour. And not anything by our design. And when Jesus looks at his enemies, how does Jesus look at his enemies? Through the lens of this extreme or that extreme? Through politically left or right? How does Jesus look at his enemies? They're not like me, so they can just burn, turn or burn. Is that how Jesus looks at his enemies? How does Jesus Christ look at his enemies? With tears. So if Jesus Christ changes everything, he changes our attitude to enemies. Let me just say, honestly, that is a deep and ongoing work, especially in me. Like, I've had people in the last few years deeply hurt me. People say all sorts of things about you and I, don't they? Have you ever had someone talk about you that never met you? You hear about it later. You see what they're saying about you or the church or whatever it is. I was talking this with someone before a church. So that happens all the time. Never even met me. Never had a conversation with me. But for some reason, want to be an enemy. And I can feel hurt by that. And what is my natural human knee-jerk reaction? Just treat them as that enemy. And have no compassion. But Jesus says, Ross, Ross. What does Jesus say on the cross? Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. 
Jesus looks at his enemies with tears. So I can too. So we can too. Jesus tells us in his word to love your enemy. He says, pray for those who persecute you. So we did this in our pastoral prayer. And when you look at the one who dies for his enemies at the cross, Romans 5 verse 8, is that one of your passages? For God shows his love for us in that whilst we were sinners, Christ died for us. Whilst we're his enemy. And so we imitate him. Our vision as a church is to make disciple-making disciples of Jesus Christ because we love God and we love others. Which means for us as a church, we live as examples of that. You can tell where someone's from by how, well, a few things, but namely, how do you tell where someone's from? If we're talking countries and citizenship, how do you tell where someone's a citizen by how they speak? You can tell them from Australia, I hope, by how I speak. Although Australians have slightly different accents. So I come from rural Australia. Maybe I talk a bit slower. That's what they say about Queenslanders. If you ever talk to shearers, that's another language in and of itself. Perhaps you come from another country. And, and so you can tell from where you're from, sort of from where you speak, your accent. You ought to be able to tell you're a Christian by the way you speak. It won't be an accent, but it will be your words. The way you speak about others, the way you speak about Jesus being your focus, the way you speak about his church, the way you speak about people you love, your neighbours, you will tell you're a Christian by the way you speak. And so that's us now, isn't it? Citizens of heaven who speak that way, who speak of their enemies that way, even with tears. And by the way, citizens of heaven, I get your temptations. Here's what we're tempted with. We hear that phrase, too heavenly minded, focus on Christ. And you go, oh, I'm, like, I'm 30, man. I've got like another 70 years till I'm 100. There's a lot of pleasures in life to enjoy. But get this. Now that you're a citizen of heaven, you now no longer need to experience all the pleasures this life has. Because this life will tell you, if you haven't done certain things or had certain experiences, you haven't had a full life. And that is a lie. And your lowly body won't be able to enjoy it forever anyway. But no, Jesus has come, so he is our pleasure. He is our joy. And he forms us into joyful community who look at our enemies as missing out and so we have tears so now I want to finish by speaking to you if you're here with us and you haven't yet trusted in Jesus or you're online and I want you to really think on this this morning from what we see in the Bible there is no joy in hell there is no joy in hell Without Jesus, your future is incredibly bleak. So here's your invitation today. Trust in Jesus with your life and death. 
Because he promises a future for you that is incredibly bright. Let's pray. Father, help us. Help Reforming Church. Help one another whom we love and long for, our joy and crown, our beloved. Help our church to stand firm in the Lord. There is much to distract us, to get us to focus on this life only. But now we know, we believe, we sing this life I live is not our own, for Jesus has paid the price, so help us live for him. And as you do that, help us to show grace to our enemies, that we would do for them what you did for us, that you would save them in Jesus' name and bring them into joyful community too. This is what we're asking. In Jesus' name, amen.